Titus chapter 1, God says that elders must not be prone to drunkenness, must not be given to drunkenness. This year, as we go through the book of Titus and allow Titus to choose topics for us, the topic that we have this morning from that passage is the topic of alcohol. And the purpose of Titus and what God wants for us this year as a church is to think about godly living, how to live our lives so that God is in control and that God is honored and that God is blessed and so that we experience the blessings of God in our lives when our lives so often feel out of control. Well, for all of recorded human history, alcohol has been part for good and for bad of people's lives. So it remains today. And as you can imagine, God has a lot to say about alcohol. And that as we think about living godly lives, we need to address the topic, how does alcohol fit into living godly lives? So that's our topic this morning. As a way of framing that topic, I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the rack in front of you. Ephesians chapter 5 is page 949. Ephesians chapter 5, it's near the end of the New Testament, middle-ish end of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5, page 949. The verse that's going to frame our discussion is verse 18. And here God says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And the issue that's at play here, the all-important question that this verse is raising is, who or what is in control? On one hand, you have this prohibition against drunkenness. It's an absolute prohibition. All throughout the scriptures, drunkenness is forbidden. And the reason is, is that drunkenness is giving over control to alcohol. It's a sign that alcohol plays too important a role in our life, and it is opening us up to the control of a substance that is not God. To be honest, what drunkenness does is actually open us up to Satan's control. This is why for any of us who've had experience with alcohol or seen someone given to drunkenness, the words and actions and attitudes, it's simply not that person. It's simply not us. It's not who we want to be. It's not who God wants us to be. And it's very clear that when drunkenness is happening, when alcohol has that strong of a control on somebody's life, that that person is no longer in control 
and instead it's the alcohol that's in control. That's why Paul uses the word debauchery here. Not that common of a word, but it means wild, out-of-control living. Drunkenness goes with out-of-control living. And God says, absolutely not. This is contrasted with being filled with the Spirit. This is also an issue of control. And the question is, and the urging is, let the Spirit be in control of your life. Yield yourself to the Spirit's control. This is the injunction from the Lord. Give over control to the Spirit because the Spirit creates life. The Spirit gives love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And the problem with drunkenness is that when alcohol is in control, all that results is destruction. And if you have been around a person or you yourself have experienced alcohol being in control, you know what I'm talking about, that what comes with it is destruction. But when someone's filled with the Spirit, what comes is joy and blessing. And in the same way, if you've been around someone under the control of alcohol, you want to be as far away as possible. Likewise, when you are around someone who is full of the Spirit, you want to be as near to them as possible. That what is flowing out of them is life and blessing. And that in many ways, a person who is under the control of alcohol is the polar opposite of a person who is under the control of the Spirit. And God says in thinking through living godly lives, don't yield your life to alcohol, that it might be in control. Yield your life to the Holy Spirit so that he might bring about in you the fruits of the Spirit that are such a blessing. Now the point of this passage is not simply to prohibit drunkenness, it does. And it's not simply to encourage us to be led by the Spirit, it does. It raises what I think is the more complex question for us today, which is, okay, drunkenness is prohibited, <clears throat> but for the person who is being led by the Spirit, what is the proper role of alcohol in such a person's life? What is the role or non-role of alcohol in the life of a person who is being led by the Spirit. We want to talk through that subject today. And let me just say that as we look through this subject, I'm going to start by giving us five things to consider for you and for me as we try to think through what role should alcohol or should alcohol not have in the life of someone who wants to be filled with the Spirit. These five things to consider are not rules or laws. They're simply things to consider. And each individual will consider them differently. And how you consider them may change from seasons of life or different situations. So let's go through these five together. Number one, what should you consider when trying to think through what is the proper role of alcohol in the life of a spirit-filled Christian? The first thing to consider is the issue of faithfulness to God 
and faithfulness to family. There's a really intriguing story in the Old Testament. We don't have time to look through it all today. I encourage you, go and read it on your own sometime. It's found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 35. I'll just give you some excerpts of it so that we can catch the flavor of the story. It begins this way, Jeremiah 35, verses 1 and 2. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family. Now, this is one family living in Israel. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So the Lord says to Jeremiah, there's this particular family in Israel known as the Rechabites. Invite them to the temple and don't just set wine out in front of them. Give it to them to drink. Well, Jeremiah does what the Lord commands him to do. Keep going, verses 6 and 7. They replied, this is the, Jacobite, or the, the Rechabite family, we do not drink wine because our forefather Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command, neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. There was one guy, Jehonadab, in Israel who kind of looked around and said, you know what? There's a danger here that if we do all the things that the surrounding nations do, that our hearts are going to be led away from the Lord and we'll engage in idolatry. And so he and his family agreed together, you know what? We're not going to build houses. We're not even going to plant crops. And we're not going to drink wine. And this is going to be a way that we are going to stay faithful to God uh, in the midst of the danger of being sucked into the culture in which we live. At the end of the story, God says this about that family. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jehonadab, and have followed all his instructions and done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a descendant serve me. So please don't miss the point. Jeremiah 35 is not an Old Testament command. This was never a rule that Israelites were not allowed to drink wine any more than there were rules about building houses or rules about planting gardens. This was simply one family who decided together, you know what? We don't want to be a part of the cultures around us and these are some of the things we're going to do to keep from imbibing in what the cultures around us are doing. So please don't think that Jeremiah 35 is a command to not drink. It's not. Also, don't sit here and think, wow, I wonder if somehow I'm related to this guy and that how somehow it's binding on me. Don't think that either. That's not the point. Nor should you think, I wonder if I had a grandfather in my past or a grandmother who made this vow or commitment and am I in trouble if I don't know about that. Not the point either. That if none of that would be binding on you. The purpose is this. You and I can, if we want, be spiritual children of Jehonadab. Meaning, you can make a decision not to drink for the very same reasons. You can simply say, you know what, to honor my parents, 
or to honor people who came before me, to honor others for whom alcohol in my family has been a real difficulty, or you can simply say, you know what, alcohol is one of those things that in American culture can be a way in which we get pulled into idolatry and all sorts of other stuff. You as an individual can choose to be a spiritual descendant of Jehonadab and simply say, for me, I'm going to choose not to participate in this because I want to be, in my case, faithful to God and faithful to family. Does that make sense? So, first one to consider is faithfulness. Second thing to consider when you think about the role of alcohol, what is wise? What does wisdom have to say? And again, this is going to vary from person to person. You may be a part of a family in which there is a genetic tendency towards alcoholism. You may have had different experiences. But what does wisdom have to say? For example, in Proverbs 23, uh, we read this. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind will imagine confusing things. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? And what the author of Proverbs is saying is, look, alcohol is dangerous. It can be abused. It can bring needless strife and problems into your life. And so wisdom would say, think about these things. Pay attention. See the kinds of destruction it can cause both personally and with other people. On the other hand, though, 1 Timothy 5, verse 23 says, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Wisdom would also say there can be medicinal benefits to alcohol. That was thought back then, and there still are some uh, today that consider to be medicinal benefits to alcohol. And so on the other hand, wisdom would say, Paul's saying to Timothy, look, you're being a little legalistic about this alcohol thing. Yes, there's some danger to it, but there are also some benefits that go with it. And so as you consider what role might alcohol play in your life as a Christian, the question is, what does wisdom have to say? There are dangers. There are blessings or benefits. Third thing to consider. And this is how alcohol can be part of spiritual devotion to God. In Numbers chapter 6, God spells out something called a Nazarite vow. This is voluntary. This is what he says. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. Like we're going all out here. Nothing associated with grapes at all. Now please, again, numbers is not binding on a Christian in the same way. It's part of the old covenant. But the purpose of the Old Testament law is not to be law for Christians today, but it does point us forward 
to things that help us to understand how to love God and how to love our neighbors. And what God is saying in this passage is, you can choose to refrain from alcohol as an act of spiritual devotion. For a particular season, if you're praying about something and you want God to lead you, you can say, you know what, Lord? For this season, I'm not going to have anything to do with alcohol. That's commendable by the Lord. There's a related passage in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 9 to 11. Then the Lord said to Aaron, the high priest, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, meaning the place where God is uniquely present, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so that you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Again, this is not binding on Christians, but it is illuminating in the sense of if you have a ministry now that God's put you in where you're teaching a Sunday school class or leading a small group or you're a pastor or you're an elder or you're involved in some sort of ministry thing, numbers would say, you might want to think through dedicating yourself to the Lord for that season of ministry so that you might not be a stumbling block to someone else or so that you can engage with the Lord in a special and unique kind of way. And if that's your position, if that's what the Spirit lays on your heart, that's commendable to the Lord. And so the third thing to consider when you think through what is the proper role of alcohol, is there any way that alcohol or the non-use of alcohol uh, might be part of an act of spiritual devotion and thinking through who you are and what it is God's called you to do for this season so you might not be a stumbling block to someone else and so that you might be drawn closer to God for the work he has you to do. Fourth thing to consider, how can the use of alcohol or the non-use of alcohol be a way in which we live out the gospel. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this in reporting what people think about him and John the Baptist. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Now, first of all, Jesus is neither a drunkard nor a glutton, and John the Baptist didn't have a demon. These are accusations that legalists are making because they don't like the attitude that is animating John the Baptist and Jesus. Let's start with John the Baptist. John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and he doesn't drink alcohol at all. Why? Well, because God is sending him especially to the Pharisees and the legalists of the Jewish people to say, hey, look, you need to understand there is one coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie that you need to acknowledge as Lord. And in order for there not to be any barriers to John the Baptist reaching those people with the gospel, God says to him, no alcohol for you. Likewise, today, there may be people here this morning who think, you know what, the Lord's called me, called me to be around Muslims or around Mormons or other cultures in this world in which alcohol is forbidden. And as part of gospel living, you say, you know what? I've been called to try to reach a group of people for whom alcohol is a stumbling block. I don't want to have anything to do with it because I love them more than I love the alcohol. Jesus did drink. Enough that people are like, hey, wait a minute. Everybody seems to know that guy drinks. This is common knowledge that Jesus drinks alcohol. 
He does so because while John the Baptist is reaching the legalists, Jesus is like, we got tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes who need salvation. And so Jesus says, drinking in this case is going to also be gospel proclamation because it allows me to connect with them. And so there are many cultures in the world today in which social drinking can be a bridge by which relationships can be formed so that the gospel can be presented. And so it's worth considering to what extent would the non-use or the use of alcohol contribute to living out the gospel and enabling us to be evangelistic of the people around us? Again, the point's not the alcohol. The point is how do you reach people who Jesus loves? And then the fifth thing to consider is the fact of celebration. In John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding, and he very famously turns water into wine. Now, the thing that's so compelling about this to me is not only does Jesus drink himself, he's also enabling others to drink socially. And why is he doing it? Well, because it's a celebration of life. After all, lest we forget, God is the one who created alcohol. God is the one who caused this to be able to happen. And Jesus is there saying, a wedding? Well, this is a fantastic time to be able to celebrate and to praise God for all the goodness that he's done. And you may need to consider that participating in drinking can be a way to celebrate God's goodness and God's blessing and to praise him for the things that he's done. So five things to consider as you think through, okay, drunkenness is absolutely prohibited. We do not want to give alcohol control. But when the spirit is in control, here are examples of people who under the spirit's control chose to drink and others who chose not to drink. These are five considerations to think through for you and I as we try to live out faithfully godly lives in this world in regards to alcohol. But I should say, the purpose ultimately is not whether you drink or don't drink. God's very clear, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And so the most important question that we want to end with, how can alcohol be used to glorify God? So whether you choose to drink or don't choose to drink, how is that something that can draw us closer to God? I have four suggestions about this as well. Number one, alcohol is an, is an opportunity to talk about self-control. Alcohol and self-control are intimately tied together. That's what Ephesians 5 is trying to say. And so alcohol is an opportunity to think through how does self-control work. Even the U.S. government recognizes that for people under the age of 21, they should not engage in drinking because of the self-control issue. Beer companies, please drink responsibly. It's an issue of self-control. And yes, Jesus did drink socially. And we have many, many examples of people in the Bible drinking socially. But as far as I can tell, there are no stories in Scripture in which underage drinking is promoted in the scriptures. Why? It's not because God is anticipating the laws of the United States. 
It's because of this point. Alcohol is really, really dangerous where there isn't self-control. If you have someone who is a new Christian or an immature Christian or even just an immature human being, alcohol is a really, really bad idea. If you have somebody where the spirit is full of self-control, then alcohol is not nearly as dangerous and can be a real blessing from the Lord. So how can we glorify God? Well, it's an opportunity to talk through how does alcohol and self-control work? And if you are a person for whom the spirit has laid on your heart the freedom to be able to drink socially, you should still ask people around you in your family and in your small group, look, Is the spirit in control in my life or is the alcohol in control in my life? You should regularly fast from opportunities to drink just to show yourself occasionally, you know what, it is the spirit and not the alcohol. And so we can sit around and bemoan the fact that alcohol exists in this world and that causes all sorts of destructive things. It does. Or we can recognize, you know what, this is an opportunity for the Lord to grow in each of us self-control. Number two, a way that alcohol can glorify God is that praise God for the enjoyment of life. The purpose of socially drinking is to bring praise to God. If you are drinking because someone else is forcing you or pressuring you or encouraging you to do it, that is not from the Lord. If you're drinking because you're lonely, or because you're stressed out, or because you're trying to escape from this world. That's not from the Lord. If you're not drinking because of legalistic rules handed down to you, which don't result in you praising the Lord, that's not from the Lord. The proper use of alcohol should result in praising God for the blessings that he gives to us. Praising God, this is why at communion, Jesus takes a glass and he says, thanks be to God for this. Thank you, God, for the provisions that you give to us. And so alcohol is actually a way to praise the Lord. If it's not functioning in that way, then the Spirit's not involved with it. But if it does result in you saying, you know what, isn't God good? Isn't God God? If it results in people around you also praising the Lord because of the role alcohol has in your life, that's great. That's from the Lord. And so alcohol is something that can bring us closer to God, as well as something that can take us further away from him. Third, alcohol is an opportunity to put grace into practice. It's no accident that Jesus says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Instead, they put new wine into new wineskins. It's a metaphor but it also literally applies to wine. And the point is, the reason why you don't put new wine into old wineskins is that new wine expands and old wineskins are all dry and crusty and they'll burst. Jesus says, instead, you take new wine and you put it in new wineskins because new wineskins are flexible. And the point is, if you and I try to handle alcohol in our lives through laws and rules, something will break. It's not designed to function in that context. If instead you and I handle alcohol under the guidance of the Spirit, there will be flexibility and stretching that will allow it to be a blessing. So for example, 
You may have grown up never touching alcohol. Great, thank you, Lord. The Lord might put you in a situation at your company or in another culture or in another situation in which instead of being legalistic about it, it's an opportunity for the Spirit to lead you in a different direction. You may have always participated in social drinking, but now you have kids and you think, you know what, this might be a stumbling block to those kids. And the Spirit is saying, what used to be fine for you, now I no longer want you to participate in. Or you may have grandkids who are now watching you and what you're doing. Or your kids may have moved out of the house and there's nobody watching you anymore. The Spirit provides flexibility to think through. It's not one size fits all. It's not a set of rules. What is happening? You may move from one company to another company and in your previous company, uh, not drinking was a really important thing evangelistically. And in the new company, participating in the social events and being part of what's going on is a bridge for the gospel. All of this to say is alcohol is an opportunity to put grace into practice. And if you're looking for a set of rules from the scriptures that say, do this, don't do this in every situation, you won't find them. What God does offer is his spirit to lead you and guide you. The prohibition against drunkenness is a rule, but outside of that, it's the spirit's leading and guidance that allows flexibility and change from one season of life to the next in one situation of life to another. And then fourth and finally, uh, and here I want to speak specifically to those who have been wounded by alcohol or those who have wounded others through the use of alcohol. Alcohol can be a very destructive force. And if you have experienced that destructive power and bear those wounds, or you have been one of the people who have perpetrated that, please listen very carefully to this last point. And I've entitled the point, Turning Wine into Water. In John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. It's a beautiful, powerful story. One of the dangers with the story is to somehow exalt what happens in that miracle, which is Jesus' very first miracle, which happens at the beginning of the book of John, as that somehow this is the goal to which Jesus is working, that somehow his goal is to get alcohol in front and center. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is a miracle that Jesus does, but it is not the most important miracle in John's gospel. The most important miracle in John's gospel, I would entitle, turning wine into water. What I mean by that is John 2, yes, water into wine. John 4, a woman comes to Jesus who is in deep pain because of some scars she's experienced at the sins of others and herself, and she is thirsting, and Jesus does not offer to her living wine. What does he offer to her? Living water. He understands alcohol will never satisfy those deep thirsts that we have, the pain that is caused. Even miraculously created alcohol will never do that. And so when Jesus wants to offer to this woman something to satisfy her soul, he offers her living water. In John chapter 7, when Jesus stands up at the festival, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And by the power of the Spirit, streams of living, not wine, streams of living water will flow from them. And if you're a person who has been hurt by or hurt others through alcohol, you can think, you know what, I've seen what happens when alcohol flows through a person, it, da it damages and destroys other people and the person it flows through, but not living water. 
the end of John's gospel, the great miracle of the crucifixion. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, John makes a really strong point that what flows out of his side is blood and what? Water, not wine, but water. This is an allusion to the fact that there will be a fountain opened up on that day and it will cleanse us from our sins. Water is the thing that washes us clean. And then all the way at the end of John's writings in the book of Revelation, the very last picture that we have on into eternity, what is flowing out of the throne of God? Water, the river of life. It's not a river of wine. It's a river of water. The most beautiful, the most powerful, the most holy, the most miraculous liquid in existence is not wine. It's water. And while in John 2, wine is a means by which God does allow people to glorify him and to celebrate the blessing of life, the bigger picture of John is that God is constantly working the miracle of turning wine into water. So what that means is for those here who have been hurt at the hands of alcohol, those wounds, that pain, that suffering, Jesus' death on that cross was meant to wash over those and heal those. For those here for whom that deep soul ache, that thirst, that longing for fulfillment in life, that loneliness that we all struggle with, the difficulties that we have in trying to make our lives feel fulfilling, the miracle of wine will never satisfy that. But the miracle of God is that through Jesus, you can be satisfied. You can have peace. And for those whom have been destructive in their use of alcohol, please hear the miracle of God. Yes, in the past, alcohol and death and destruction flowed through you to destroy the lives of people you love. But through Jesus, it is possible for streams of living water to flow through you to give life wherever you go. This is the miracle of God. And for those for whom sin and shame and guilt driven us to alcohol or those sorts of things, it is the gift of God, the waters of life that wash over us and make us clean. And that when we talk about alcohol, alcohol is not ultimately the goal. The goal is God is taking whatever alcohol has, good or bad, and transforming it into something that is purely good. And the great miracle is God turning wine into water. So we close this morning back in Ephesians 5, 18. Don't get drunk on wine. Don't let alcohol be in control. Don't let the destruction that comes through alcohol, the abuse of alcohol, be part of your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let life and joy and peace flow through you. And the extent to which God has alcohol be part of your life, praise the Lord. His spirit will lead you and guide you so that alcohol doesn't have to be damaging and destructive, but a blessing and a gift from the Lord. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. 
On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.